You're listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Here's the deal. If you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples sit around and talk and talk and talk. This is the podcast for those weary of just talking and ready to start activating in the mission Jesus gave us to change the world. The Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, where disciples and disciple makers gather to grow and go together. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Hey, dear friends. Great to have you with us today. Remember, the place for a man, for a woman completing all their powers is in the fight, in the spiritual fight. And right now, today, making disciples of the nations just like Jesus told us to do. So stay tuned, stay encouraged. We have a rendezvous with destiny. All right, friends, listen, I've told you this before. I'm an old talk show host guy. Yeah, used to do some radio and wrote a newspaper column. So one of the things I just kind of like to do is look across at the news and see what's out there that eh, might be fun to talk about. So let's let's do that right now. One of the things I saw that was kind of fascinating to me is just uh, this whole thing of New York City. It's It's been in the news lately because apparently it's becoming less and less attractive to New Yorkians. Yeah, folks that live there are beginning to say, well, let me just put it this way. There was a poll uh, released this week by Fontas Advisors Core Decision Analytics, and they presented voters with a statement, quote, my family would have a better future if we left New York City permanently. And 59% of the respondents said, that's right. We strongly or somewhat agree with that statement. And that's about a 12 percentage point jump from voters who were asked the same question a year ago. Now, when you ask the question, what's wrong with New York City? Crime and cost of living is secondary, but crime was the most pressing issue on voters' minds. 41% cited public safety as the most important issue, more than double uh, the respondents have said cost of living, gas prices, et cetera. So I'm thinking, all right, New York City, of course, you know, I, I'm from the deep south here. So when we hear about New York City and all their problems, we go, yeah, yeah, makes sense. I mean, after all, it's New York City. I thought, eh, let me do a little experiment here. So I, uh, I went up there to my search engine and said, okay, New York City crime rate versus Jackson, Mississippi, where, where I'm from. And, uh, and, uh, oh my goodness. Uh, this, this, uh, the first place I stopped at was a, called bestplaces.net and it had violent crime and property crime with the two things they decided to compare New York city and Jackson, Mississippi. And so violent crime. And by the way, they also compared the, the whole United States of America. So violent crime, they gave a, uh, for, for, based on based on FBI data, they gave a score ranging from low to high. One is low, 100 would be high. And uh, what would be the United States on violent crime? Well, it's 22.7, which obviously isn't good. Uh, much worse is New York City. So on violent crime, the United States came in at 22.7. New York City came in at 28.2, which is not good. You can understand why New York City is upset and you know much more so this year than last year. But right next to that number is my community, Jackson, Mississippi. Now, 22.7 for the United States, 28.2 for New York, 40, I kid you not, 45.8 know, 
in violent crime points for Jackson, Mississippi. Not quite twice as bad. Well, well, actually, it is twice as bad compared to the United States. Almost that for New York City. So let's go down to property crime. By the way, when they talk about violent crime, they're talking about murder and uh, manslaughter and rape and robbery and aggravated assault. Let's go down to property crime. And property crime are things like burglary and larceny, the theft, uh, motor vehicle theft, arson. Uh, and so you go down to property crime and the United States comes in at 35.4. Interesting enough, New York City is well down from that at 24.9. So on property crime, United States at 35.4. New York City is 24.9. My community of Jackson, Mississippi, 71.8 in property crime. And you're thinking, oh, my goodness, what right does the Deep South, what right does Jackson have to say, yeah, New York City? In comparison, New York City is looking really good. So just, just to say, comparison is a dangerous thing, but it also can be a very sobering thing from time to time. And so people say, well, for crying out loud, get out of there, man. Get out of Jackson, Mississippi. And I do live inside the city limits in Jackson. Get out of there. I'm thinking, no, 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 no. Listen, I'm grateful that my kids uh, had the opportunity to grow up in a very challenging place. And by very challenging, we haven't found it challenging. We found it wonderful. We love it here. And particularly where we're located in the town, gas is right over there. The bank's right over there. The groceries are right over there. Everything's in close proximity. We love it in Jackson, Mississippi. Having said that, we do have our challenges. And I'll, I'll just say, one of the great things about raising a family is, I don't want to raise them in Shangri-La. I don't want to raise them in paradise. I want to raise them in a challenging place for the challenging places of the world, if you know what I mean. I, I, I just don't want them to live in paradise. And I also don't want them to think, you know, when you get a better job somewhere else, and by better job, more pay, better location, better people to work with, so-called, do you automatically assume that's a will of the Lord and I'm headed that way? And I'm thinking, that's not how I want to live my life. I want to live my life to say, if there's a problem, does God want me to be a solution to that problem? Hang in there and hang in there over years, over decades to be part of the solution of a place instead of always running to the easier, better, better paying place. Just use that as a challenge for your own thinking, folks. We don't always have to run from the troubling places of the world. Apparently, compared to Jackson, Mississippi, New York City is a fine place to live if you're going to look at violent crime and property crime as being the things you are judging a community by. Now, having said all that, a couple of other things were kind of fascinating to me. One is the CDC, right? Centers for Disease Control. And we've all known about them in the last uh, a couple years of our life because of the so-called pandemic. Uh, we have had our challenges here in this country, but now we're seeing that uh, there's some people that want to pipe up as to now that we look at the damage COVID has done to us and not just the damage we're talking about in terms of, you know, the deaths and uh, the, the hurt that COVID, the virus put on us. But are there some other things that we need to pay attention to now 
as we learn about how we handle these things in the future. And I think that they're very much are. Um, new Centers for Disease Control study reveals how badly teenagers, for instance, have suffered from COVID policies. And you know, COVID policies, we're talking about shutting things down, keeping people away from school, and by extension, keeping people away from church. Let's shut things down. That's the best way to handle disease. And what we found out is when we look at our teenagers, a third of U.S. high school students, and this is by the CDC. The CDC told us to stay home. Now the CDC is coming back saying, you know, that created some problems for us, didn't it? Yes, CDC, it sure did. Nearly half. 44% of teens said they felt sad or hopeless. A horrifying near 20%, 20% of our teenage kids said they had seriously considered suicide in the previous 12 months. These kids twice as likely to attempt suicide when they feel disconnected. And by public policy, we said, stay disconnected. Y'all, that's, I hope we learn from this, that just shutting down life isn't the way to handle sickness, because when we do it, it creates other kinds of sickness. And then this, I just... Do you remember Newt Gingrich years ago? Uh, in fact, it was a 1994 congressional campaign. There was a guy named Newt Gingrich, who you all probably know about if you've been, you know, if you know, watch the news or anything. And there's another guy named Dick Army. And uh, Gingrich was from Georgia, Army was from Texas, and they drew up what they called a contract with America. It was brilliant. It said, okay, in the first 100 days of the new Congress, these are the things we intend to bring up for a vote. They didn't promise that they would enact all these things. Just we're going to bring them up for a vote. We're going to do our best to enact them, but we're bringing them up for a vote. We're going to be busy doing what the American people want us to do. And they, they pulled well, things like term limits that pulled extremely well across America, other things concerning taxation. They just decided we're going to get busy. And I just, every year, every congressional campaign since I thought, do the contract with America again. Do the, And by the way, I think Democrats ought to do it as well as Republicans. I think both political parties ought to say in the first 100 days, this is what you can count on us to do. We're going to settle in. If you elect us, we're going to settle in and get these certain things done. We're going to bring these things up for a vote. We're going to have a tremendous American debate about these particular items. Let the Democrats say what they're going to do. The top six, 10, 20 things they're going to do. Let the Republicans do the same. Then let's have a national debate instead of, hmm, who do I like better? Or, hey, uh, what president will they support? And by the way, that's not an inconsequential question. But no, these are the, so this contract with America, I thought it was a brilliant idea in 1994. I think every cycle since then, I said, why don't we do this again? Well, guess what's just happened? Mike Pence, remember, former vice president, has authored a similar contract with America, and he's calling it the Freedom Agenda. Now, again, Great idea for the Republicans if they will latch onto this, and I don't know that they will. Maybe they won't. But if they do latch onto it, brilliant, wonderful, smart. I have no idea what's on it. 
But what I will say is it's great to have an agenda. And I just have to wonder if this is an idea for all of us. By family, family by family, what is our agenda hmm, for the next year? What are the things we will get done? Maybe more particular than that in the next hundred days, uh, you know, what, three months? In the next three months, what will this family get done? Uh, what will this church get done? What will my Sunday school class get done? We're not just going to sit here and listen to lessons. No, God's called us to be doers of the word. What does it mean to get some things done? Not just to become a congressman, not just to be a member of this family, not just to be someone that says, let me sit in this Sunday school class and absorb the, all the great lessons on Ephesians. No, what will we do? with that epistle to the Ephesians. What will we get done? And if we could live our life a little bit more like that, maybe you think, well, that just make us functional people. Well, let's not, let's not cast it that way. Let's cast it this way. God wants us to be doers of the word, to get some things done. Let's go ahead and figure out maybe, just maybe, how we could do that very thing. Listen, one of our sponsors of our program today is Teleos Press. Lots of really great books at teleospress.com. Teleos is a Greek word, by the way, for whole, complete, perfect. It's, it's spelled T-E-L-E-I-O-S, T-E-L-E-I-O-S. So go to teleospress.com for a lot of wonderful volumes, including the 5Q Method of Discipleship, which, by the way, will teach you more about how to be a serious disciple maker for Jesus. By the way, that's this 5Q Method is zooming around the world. It's really, really exciting to see what Jesus is doing with the 5Q method of assumption. Well, get the book, read about it, and see if you might not be able to do something with it. And by the way, if you'd like, call me up, zoom me into your church. We'll talk about how your church can become great disciple makers for Jesus like he asked us to do. So just check it out, teleospress.com. All right. One of the things we are doing with the books of the Bible is going through one by one, you know, we might double up on a couple of them, get to Chronicles or something. We might eh, put them together. But on the whole, saying, let's discover what are the discipleship principles out of this book of the Bible. And we're up to right now, Joshua. Now, we don't do this every week, but it'd be kind of fun over the next year or two to sort of roll out the whole canon, all 66 books of the Bible and see what they have to teach us. And I like to bring in thinkers from our seminary and other thinkers eventually that we could say, hey, listen, do you have anything to contribute here? And I'm delighted today. It's a real honor for me as dad to have in my son, who happens to be the vice president of enrollment student services here at uh, Wesley Biblical Seminary, my son, Elijah Freedom. Hey, Elijah. Hey, thanks for having me in today. All right. So we uh, we need to tell people a little bit about your background. You, you're seminary trained, right? Yep. So had my master of divinity uh, from seminary, did undergraduate at Christian college as well, and then planted a church four years ago. We just celebrated four years. So church planter and I work here at the seminary as well. So the church planting uh, was a church that was a plant four years ago. Foundry is the name. So if they wanted to check out, and by the way, they ought to y'all, Elijah, now he's my son. So you'd anticipate I'd say something like this, but he's a preacher. And you need to go check out his preaching. And where can they do that? How do they do that? So they can find our social media channels are all at This Is Foundry, or they can go to thisisfoundry.com. And there's some sermons posted there. Thisisfoundry.com. I guarantee you're going to love his preaching. And one of the things, one of the reasons I asked him in, because I knew he'd have some insight on any book of the Bible, really. But Joshua, by the way, your undergraduate, you, you did ancient languages, didn't you? I did, yeah. Hebrew and Greek, really focused in on those. Oh, how about that? 
So anyway, we are here now, Book of Joshua, and Elijah is going to share with us the five major discipleship principles that he's seen. Now, y'all, there's probably 12, 15, 20, maybe uh, you know, 30 discipleship principles in Joshua, but I'm asking all of our guests to hunker down and give me five of the ones that the Lord has been pressing upon their heart. So Elijah, number one. Yeah, number one is develop a spiritual confidence that's based on God's word. So that would be for yourself and then for the people you're discipling. One, I think one of the first steps in discipling someone else is really believing that God has called you to it. He's equipped you for it. He's given you a life that's worthy of of being emulated. So like Paul said, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. We've got to have that kind of life, and we have to believe we can have that kind of life. And you see this in Joshua uh, right at the very beginning. Uh, the familiar passage for many of us, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. But e each time that phrase is repeated, it's repeated around specific things God has said. So in chapter 1, verse 5, this is what God says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. So if you have God saying to you, you are going to do just what Moses did. You're, no one's going to be able to oppose you. I'm going to be with you. That's some spiritual confidence. But what he goes on to, what God goes on to say to Joshua is verse seven, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. And then he goes on to say, he, he tells them, uh, to make sure that he does according to everything that's written in it in verse 8. And so you have these, these two dynamics here. One is God gives Joshua a very specific promise for himself. No man can stand against you. But he also says, now go back to my word, follow my word, follow what I've said. And that's where your confidence can come from. Yeah, I love, by the way, verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. What, what do you suppose that means? Well, he goes on to clarify. You, sh you should meditate on it day and night. You mm. should be murmuring it, thinking it, That's saying That's what that meditation it, word it. means in the Hebrew. Yeah, meditate. Yeah, typically when it's used, it means murmur, literally to mumble under your breath. Now, that's what they did apparently with everything back then. They did not read the Bible quietly. They always read it out loud from the scroll for, in, in a public place. But also that's pretty much how they prayed too, always out loud. I think there's something powerful to that, don't you? I think so, especially in a distracted culture like ours. I get so distracted. If I just sit <laughs> mentally and you know, shut everything off. So when I pray, I, I pray out loud just because it keeps my mind focused. I think there's power. Oh, in that. it helps me too. I think that's a, that's a really great thing. And uh, I think it there's more senses involved. So Yeah, yeah. Well, and yeah there's, there's a way it's concrete and real when you're speaking it that it's not when you're thinking it. So discipleship lessons from Joshua, number one, is biblical confidence, number two. Yeah, number two, teach the spiritual discipline of a long-term memory. So don't. So th this is this is I think huge in, in Joshua. You see it throughout. So if you go to chapter four, I believe it is. They cross the Jordan and they set up twelve memorial stones. Mm. And and this is for Joshua explicitly says set up these stones, and then he says in verse six that this may be a sign among you when your children ask you in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? In other words, this this is a way, this is a teaching tool to help your kids, your offspring, know what God did. God brought us into this land. It was by his power, by his goodness. So set up these stones. And so there's this, there's this spiritual discipline of a long-term memory. You don't just need to know what's going on today or yesterday. You need to be able to look back and know what God's done. But here's the really interesting thing. If you go all the way to the end of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 24, verse 31, this is what it says. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. There's an implication then that after these people died off, and we see it in Judges, after these people died off, the people of Israel quit following the Lord because they didn't have the spiritual discipline of a long-term memory. Wow. 
So in order to make a disciple, to be a good disciple, you've got to be able to look back to remember, to keep in focus what God's done in the past and not lose sight of that, which which is tough in our distracted culture to do. Well, what are some practical ways to do that today in our culture? How do we establish that long-term memory of things that God has done in our family, in our local church, in in Christendom. Yeah. So I, th- I think we need to encourage each other, exhort each other by telling stories. Mm. You know, one of the most, I, I told it, I did use a sermon illustration recently of a missionary. I'm trying to remember who it was now. It's been a few months, but I think it's Adoniram Judson. And I told the story of Adoniram Judson. Most people in my congregation had no idea who it was, but that is one of the stories I've told that people have commented on the most. Just this man of God who put it all on the line for God. And just by telling that story, and it's not a biblical story. It's just a, a guy who was serving God, but it inspired others, encouraged others. So I think repeating those stories uh, is, is a huge way of doing it. I was, I was reading in James recently, James 5, and it talks about the return of Jesus. And James says, establish your heart, right? Establish, fix your heart, be established, and look back to the prophets of old. So we're, we're called to look back and remember what God has done and, and tell those stories, remember those stories, know those stories. Yeah, I, I think the, the word for that is testimony, testifying. And there's power in that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think we've lost it. So I pastor a church that's largely younger. It's most of our people, the majority of our people are 18 to 35 or so. And we don't get up and testify like you know previous generations had done. You, that was a normal thing in a lot of traditions is stand up on a Sunday, stand up on a Sunday night and share your testimony. And we don't do that as much. I think we've, we've lost something because of that. Well, it builds faith, builds your faith by, again, having it in your mouth, having it proceed from your mouth. But it builds other people's faith thinking, you know, I'm kind of in the same kind of jam you were in back then. Yeah, they can see you can see exactly what God did, what he can do going forward. All right. Biblical confidence. Number one. Number two, teach a long term memory of what God has done. Number three, take sin seriously mm. in your life and your disciples lives. You have this story in Joshua chapter seven of Achan and Achan kept back. You know, they're supposed to go in and destroy everything, commit everything to the Lord and Aiken instead keeps some back for himself. And what's interesting, we live in such a individualized culture. So we think my sin affects me. Maybe it's not good, but God will forgive it. It's okay. But we see in Joshua how your sin, your personal sin, affects the whole community. The, the whole community suffered because of Aiken's sin. Should we be preaching that kind of thing? It's not just about you. You think, hey, it's my thing. It's nobody else's business. But that story says... Well, it's kind of everybody else's it's business. It's everybody's business. I think we should. In fact, I was I was talking to someone yesterday uh, who's doing some marriage counseling, and they were as part of the marriage counseling, they they wanted the couple to commit to not live together, not not be sexually active, which seems like a pretty basic. This is a Christian couple, and and the Christian couple declined. And what they said is, what happens behind closed doors is none of your business. Wow. And I don't think that's a unique perspective. I think a lot of American Christians would say the same thing. It's it's our personal thing. Keep your keep your judgment. Keep your self out of our lives. And that's, that's not a biblical concept. And, and our personal sin, whether or not anyone else knows it can affect and destroy a whole lot of things. Yeah. And I think that what, what that is, is spiritual authority. And we lack a lot of spiritual authority today. Yeah. And I think we open up our families and churches and communities to spiritual attack, or we give you know the enemy a stronghold in our lives through, through doing that. I think through this statement with me, I, I heard one time that when, when, uh, Discipline. When church discipline walks out the door, Jesus walks out with it. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I would agree. I look at I would, that makes me think of as First Corinthians. You know, Paul saying there's stuff going on in your midst that not even pagans do, and I think the implication there in First Corinthians is you're 
you're in a dangerous spiritual place. Mm. I think one of the ways we can take sin seriously, you're, you'll remember in uh, John Wesley's day, they had things called bands and classes. And what they did was in those bands and classes, they straight up asked each other, what have you done since the last time we were together? What sin, what mm-hmm. sin have you done? And the leader always went first, then it went around to the rest of the circle. Um, I'm not so sure that approach works today. Maybe it does. Fact of the matter is one way or another, it has to work. If we're going to be biblically faithful people, we've got to talk about our sin. There's got to be some place you can, right? And if, if you can't do that in discipleship, where else do you yeah, do it? Exactly right. You can't ex- expose yourself. All right. The, the five lessons of discipleship from the book of Joshua, according to Elijah Friedelman, is number one, biblical confidence. Number two, teach long-term memory. Number three, take sin seriously. And number four, we have to know God wants everything. There's, there's no, he does, he doesn't just want part of it. You see this in the story of Achan, but you also see it all the way throughout. If you go to Joshua 24, this is towards the end, the very last chapter of the book. And Joshua is laying out for you, for the people of Israel. If you turn away, if you follow other gods, then God will not forgive you, which is a bold statement. But God wants everything. He wants it all. And I don't think we have made this a part of our teaching and discipleship enough in the church of God wants everything. He doesn't just want you to commit a portion of your life to him or to follow him or to tithe 10%. He wants everything. And until we start communicating that clearly, developing that mindset in people, we're going to have half-baked disciples who never fully get to that place where they can endure under persecution, where they can follow Jesus no matter the cost, because he wants everything. Now, I, I, I love tithing. I believe in tithing, but I have to wonder if tithing as we have taught it, hasn't hurt us in this to say, give 10% without taking seriously the 90% of people's money to say, now this is what you do with that. I think I know your heart on this, Elijah, say it all ought to be consecrated to the Lord, not just the 10% that should go to the church. Yeah, it's, it's even a little easy to say all consecrated, right? Because I, I can consecrate 90 and still use it for myself. I think we need to actively take steps to how do we expand out in very concrete ways the Lordship of Jesus into every area of our life. So what that would look like, I think, practically is can I increase my giving this year over last year? Percentage-wise, can I can I continue to increase it, or whatever area of your life that is? Can I can I take more of my time and give it towards God than I did last year? Can I continue continually increase that? Yeah, well, and, and it's not just money; it's uh, it's recreational time. Listen, consecrate your recreational time to the Lord. Uh, consecrate your physical body. So, how do I need to keep this physical body optimum for the Lord, etc.? It goes on, but that's a great one. So, biblical confidence, teach long-term memory, take sin seriously. Uh, and we have to know that God wants everything. By the way, is that, I think there'd be some theological difference across our nation. You know, we evangelicals uh, pretty much agree on everything and disagree on some things. And that might be one of the things we disagree on, that that's even possible to consecrate everything. Yeah, I think it would as, as you as you survey out the different theological traditions. But when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. I think he means it. I think he really expects that for our lives. And of course, you can always get down to the subconscious, say, well, can you fully know if you've given everything? I think what Jesus is looking for in a very real practical way, everything you're aware of, everything your life touches that you know about, he wants access to it and he wants your full trust in those areas. Mm, beautiful stuff. Number five. Number five. And this is the, this is the I think, the human aspect of what we just talked about, give everything to God. It's all his. This is the, looking at it from another angle. Don't quit until you have everything God is giving you. 
Mm. So it's not just making sure God has everything that your life touches right now. It's making sure that your life continues to expand out into everything God has for you. So you welcome God into everything you already have. Turn around. And you, you see this so clearly in uh, in Joshua chapter 13. It lists out just before this all the all the kings defeated by Joshua and Israel. And this is all the success they had. And then it says in Joshua 13, when Joshua was old, the Lord said, there's still land to possess. Hmm. I think there's so many Christians who are in the place Joshua was. He was old. He had this conquest in front of him, but it, time had gotten away from him, gotten distracted by things, just trying to take care of stuff, keep the people going. And there was all this land God still had for them to possess. And God doesn't say, well, you know, I wanted you to, but I, God just says, do it, do it now. I think wherever you are in your, your walk with the Lord, there's still land to possess and go possess it now. Mm. Love the story of Caleb. And, and, and Caleb that. says, let, let me go possess it. Uh, listen, let me I, go do it. I, I know where we were intimidated uh, 40 plus years ago. And, and I, uh, I see a place now that I'd like to go uh, take charge of. Let me do it, please. Let me do it. Yeah, and he's he's not slowing down because of his age. He's, I love that. How old, you know? Yeah, I think it tells us. I forget, but he's he was up there. He was he was <laughs> he, he's older than I am now. That's let's right. just say that. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else out of Joshua? Those are five great things. Yeah, I, th I think I think overall what we see in Joshua is how the Lord brings His people where He wants them to go, but even when He brings them there, they they don't persist in that. And so I think that's the overarching lesson of Joshua is where the Lord has brought you continue to press in, push forward with what he has. Cause it doesn't just affect your life. It affects the generations to come. What I love about, and I saw this in an NIV study Bible note one time, it talks about the seven memorials that, where they, they piled up rocks in, uh, in Joshua. And then it said, by the way, same thing happens in acts hmm. where it says, I want you to be my witness to, in, to the ends of the earth. And there are seven people updates. Oh, interesting. Yeah, in the Greek, you got to kind of yeah. know a little Greek to know. But seven people updates in, a, in a, and so it still it still happens today. Yeah, and that that kind of puts together a couple things. Don't quit. It's there's still the seventh thing that's still out there that God wants you to do, but you're going to have to recognize that uh, you're going to have to do all of these things that I just talked about today. You're going to have to go with biblical confidence. The long-term memory thing is huge. You've got to take sin seriously every step of the way and know that God wants everything. Hold nothing back. Don't quit no matter what. Good stuff. Really, really, really good stuff. All right, friends, it's a wrap. Hey, Elijah, by the way, real quick, but remind everybody where they can go to hear some of your sermons because uh, they're really good. I want people to hear them. And by the way, you talking about money just now, you just got through a series on money, didn't you? Yeah. So if people want to hear about tithing, which I know we just said wasn't enough, but they can go, yeah, they go check that out. This is foundry.com is the church website. The messages are archived there. People can watch them. Lots of really great messages there. All right. It's a wrap. Been an honor to have you listen to Life-Changing Discipleship with Matt Friedman, particularly with my son today, Elijah. Hey, check out our Facebook page, Life-Changing Discipleship, and make sure to check out our books. One of the Best place to check them out is just Amazon.com. Type in Matt Friedman in the search engine, see what's offered, but particularly check out that book, The 5Q Method of Discipleship. And always, always to other peoples about our podcast. And remember, my wife thanks you. My daughter thanks you. My sons and their wives thank you. And I can assure you that I thank you for listening to Life-Changing Discipleship today. Love God, live clean, keep the faith, make disciples, and God bless you, dear friends. We'll see you back here real soon. Music.